there, and welcome to Fuds on Film. I'm Drew, I'm joined today by Scott. Hello. And this is the third part of our look at Spike Lee's joints. Not in a kind of bone doctor sort of way or anything, you understand. <laughs> in this episode, we'll be talking about a powerful documentary, a remake of a Korean film based on a, Jack- a Japanese manga about hammers, an adaptation of a 2400-year-old play, a scarcely believable, yet mostly true, tale of improbable undercover police work, and the latter-day Kelly's Heroes, although with more scruples. So, quite a mixed bag, all in all. I will also be trying not to say (laughs) a lot, something I've not managed too well so far this week, but I'll do my best. (laughs) I'm less hopeful on the whole not mentioning the double dolly thing, though. Right, Scott. This is perhaps better placed at the end, but just briefly before we go on, how, how have you felt about Spike Lee so far? Has this been a worthwhile exercise? Oh, yes, yes. Um, I mean, spoilers, there's only been one film I wouldn't particularly like very much, and even then I didn't hate it very at all. So um, it's a, a decent hit rate out of, well, spoilers, 15 films. Um, it's nothing in this batch we're talking about that I'd have any major issues with either. So, yes, most worthwhile and uh, very good to see. As you, you probably know, we, we mentioned, uh, this is to the listeners now, Scott, rather than you, mm-hmm. uh, we changed things up a little this month and just made the entire month about one person. It's not something we'll do regularly, I don't think, but it's something we may come back to in the future. It's quite interesting just to focus on one person. And what you notice with Spike Lee is that he's quite on the nose with a lot of the points he's making, but he also isn't afraid to try a lot of things. And... He certainly won't allow himself to be pigeonholed into one particular genre Absolutely, or style yeah. of film. He certainly tries a lot of things, which I appreciate very much. Yeah, yeah. To that end, I suppose we should start talking about some of the things. Will we do that? Yes. Will I, since I'm up first? Yes. So we're fudging things a little here by straying outside of Strictly Film into what is technically a miniseries, shown in two parts on HBO in the USA and BBC4. I think, in the UK. But it's worth tweaking the entrance criteria for such an outstanding piece of documentary filmmaking. Filmed from the middle of 2005, right after Hurricane Katrina had laid waste the city of New Orleans, When the Levees Broke, A Requiem in Four Acts, is both a heartbreaking look at the devastation caused to the community of one of the most artistically and culturally vibrant and influential cities in the United States, and an excoriating investigation of the failures of planning, management and response that caused the disaster and brutally exacerbated its consequences. The interviewees, which include engineers, volunteers, residents, families of victims, journalists and broadcasters, and the New Orleans mayor and Louisiana governor, together tell the tale of what happened. Starting with a population unwilling to heed storm warnings they had heard before that had come to nothing, or, more commonly, were financially unable to respond to, even in the face of the mandatory evacuation order given by the mayor, we follow events through the Category 5 hurricane, and then the storm surge overwhelmed the levees and inundated large parts of the city. Things move on from the initial destruction to the extra death and chaos caused by FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and their underwhelming, slow, inappropriate, inadequate, scattershot, and in the early days, entirely absent response. And then the return to the city of some of the residents and the scenes of utter devastation that awaited them. The latter portion of Levies deals with what may be the greatest tragedy of Hurricane Katrina, at least in the longer term, the gutting of the city's population. Families were distributed and separated all around the US, endangering the culture of one of the country's most unique cities, something the USA can ill afford. It's a very even-handed documentary. For example, some of the earlier interviews talk about a theory that the levees had been intentionally dynamited to intentionally flood the city, either to affect property prices or save richer neighbourhoods. And these are presented in a fairly non-judgmental way and are balanced by further interviews that suggest the truth. The explosions many people reported were likely sections of flood defences giving way under the weight of water or the impact of a large unmoored barge that caused significant damage. But this is no jet fuel doesn't melt steel beams nonsense. 
These two threads are followed by a brief history lesson explaining how not far-fetched the deliberate destruction theory is. The interviews, there and elsewhere, are from all classes and creeds, rich and poor alike. The documentary taking care to show that this was a tragedy that affected a whole city. Though, while not denying the obvious facts that some people had it worse. Aside from the tragedy at the heart of it, there were a few moments of wry amusement to be had in looking back now. Like the quaint notion that George W. Bush was the worst president in US history. (laughs) Likewise his administration. And the sight of Kanye West criticising a US president for hating black people, (laughs) rather than donning one of his hats and supporting him. What the hell happened there? It runs to four and a quarter hours, and as its TV broadcast would suggest, wasn't intended to be seen in one sitting, so don't let the length put you off. But even still, I still found it captivating and informative, and enraging of course, and watched it again in one sitting without ever noticing the running time. It's simply excellent. Yes, uh, another winner from the, the Spike Lee documentary camp. I was glad that the uh, more tinfoil-hatted stuff got a fairly short shrift and because the reality of what actually happened was much more affecting. And um, I mean, we all saw the pictures of what was happening in uh, New Orleans at the time, but what I didn't really have a lot of understanding of was the fallout from it the, the way that families seem to be divided up essentially at random and posted off to bits of the country um, mm-hmm. th- that was a bit of a surprise to me and seemed entirely unjustified I'm not sure what the rationale for that was, that's a very strange thing to have done but thankfully of course the US has learned from these kind of uh, massive public health crises and would never do something as ridiculous as this again um, no, I mean, they, they deal with families so much better Scott I mean it's not a country that would for instance have baby cages <laughs> where do you even buy a baby cage uh, yeah um, yes uh, I don't have a lot to, to critically analyse in this to be honest with you it's it's a really well made documentary that's really quite affecting of a very important subject and almost everything that it brings up still hasn't really been properly remedied by anything in, in the intervening time quite how the level of response was so bad is something that, I'm sure there's been reports into it but they don't really seem to have come into any answers other than eh, I don't know so it was bad I, I don't know what the, the fixes for this kind of thing are and whether we've learned their lessons with flood defences and all that kind of thing which is only ever going to get more important as things go on and the ocean levels rise yeah I don't know it's, it didn't leave me in a particularly optimistic uh, frame of mind this so uh, that's that's not really the documentary's fault as much as as the kind of inevitable result of what's happened in the intervening intervening time. So yes, but it's a really well made film and something that is well worth taking a look at. Yeah, yeah. I need to check out the sort of follow up uh, which is made four or five years later called "If God Is Willing" and "The Creek Don't Rise." Mm-hmm. It'd actually be quite nice to see if Spike Lee go back maybe maybe now a decade after this first return. Yeah, see how things are, but. Uh, I don't have a lot of hope that they're great. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately. There are very few criticisms to be made about the documentary, if any at all. The the criticisms are all to do with humans and politics and human nature and stuff. One moment I was particularly struck by, and it's, it's not unusual for me to be bothered by this, and it's certainly not uncommon to see it. I think it's Act 3 that opens with people talking, particularly there's a... There's one woman who, uh, in fact, ignore that because I can't remember her name. I said it's matter. Act three in particular, Scott, is opened by people talking about their faith, and uh, you see some church services and people praying and stuff, and that just enrages me because it's it's the problem with religion, and I think that sometimes people, I mean, there are slightly more malicious things that use religion to control people, but. I think people think that people put up with their lot because that religion teaches them to and they accept that, that and they find that quite convenient. Yeah. Because the whole tone of the beginning of Act 3 is basically people saying, people who've had the worst things happen to them and through no fault of their own at all, uh, entirely innocent people, and as much as any individual human can be innocent in a capitalist democracy, but uh, basically... This is my life and I should accept it because God is good and he has a plan. Mm-hmm. And there's so many people who say this and, and okay, I understand that people find comfort in religion and things. 
But I'm looking at this documentary showing the most horrendous things that happen. All these f- shots of bodies mm. left in the water for weeks and weeks and weeks and months even, in some cases inside the houses. And I'm thinking, no, what you should be saying, use the same words and change your tone. <laughs> this is my life and I should accept it because God is good and he has a plan. <laughs> I, I don't... I, Okay, to be fair, it's not necessarily going to serve any purpose, but I don't understand why these people are angry instead of accepting. Well, you're saying you'd be upset if I came to you saying, look, I've got a plan for you, right? What I'm going to do is flood your house and kill your family. Does that sound um, Does that sound reasonable? You're on board with that? Well, if some book of fairy tales written a couple thousand years ago says so, Scott, then yes. I'll reward you in the next life. <laughs> but, but, but that is a rant for another time. Well, if you know me, many, many other times. But I'll keep it out of this. It's, uh, it's just that the film is... Thoughts on like, theology. Thoughts <laughs> on theology. It's just that the film is demonstrating. It's like just the way people deal with these things. And it honestly just enrages me sometimes. <laughs> Because yeah. I think the people, the, the real villains of the piece, the the government that didn't do what it should have done, FEMA that didn't do what it should have done, the the fact that the revenues that should make that one of the richest states in the union actually don't go anywhere near the state. Yeah, and these people don't have a house anymore, and their families are a thousand miles away, and they're going, oh well, I've got my faith. Like that just enrages, and it saddens me too. Like, no, get angry. Yeah. <laughs> you should be getting angry and, and not accepting this. But again, that's a, that's a human nature thing, unfortunately, rather than a, um, an issue with this film. The film itself is excellent. It, it's very affecting and it really, it really is very evenly handed. And there, there's plenty of anger to be brought out of or caused by it, but it's not, it's not artificial. No, it's all incredibly well justified. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, so... We're going to move on to something very, very different, which is a remake, Scott. Although, to be honest, not enough hammers for my liking. Mm. Needs more hammers. <laughs> yes, uh, we're talking about Old Boy, um, where after his latest bender, obnoxious alcoholic executive, Joe Doucette, uh, Josh Brolin, awakes to find himself imprisoned in what appears to be a hotel room with no idea why. His only companion is a TV that informs him he's wanted for the murder of his wife. Who's behind all of this? That will be something that he'll try to figure out over the 20 years he ultimately spends there, a purpose that eventually gives him drive to prepare himself mentally and physically for the storm that will follow. Awaking in a box in the middle of a field, just as mysteriously as his kidnapping, Joe follows some breadcrumbs and hunches, aided by his old friend Chucky, Michael Imperioli, and a new acquaintance, a kindly but damaged nurse, Marie, um, played by Elizabeth Olsen, uh, with the man responsible for Joe's troubles, the stranger, Shalto Copley, soon giving Joe an ultimatum. Determine his identity in 46 hours and be rewarded with evidence to clear his name, money and the continued life of his kidnapped author. Should he fail, he gets none of that. And so it goes, with an investigation in the mould of classic private investigator Mike Hammer. Sorry, I misread that. An investigation that remoulds people with a hammer. Uh, yes, there's, there's a fair amount of violence as this plot is unveiled, the details of which I shall gloss over in case you have, against all logic and reason, not watched this, or more correctly, Park Chan-wook's 2003 film that this is a remake of. Or reinterpretation, as Lee would have it, but, well, it's a remake. <laughs> not a shot-for-shot remake, but the bones of it are much the same between the two, and, well, the biggest problem when talking about this old boy is not to just talk about the original old boy, which, as is often the case with these things, is better, did it first, which makes it harder to build much of a case for Lee's version. Uh, let's attempt it, anyway. It's hard for me to judge the uh, judge what any impact of Lee's small narrative modifications would have to the first-time viewer, but the original was a highly compelling piece of work, and I... Pretty sure this would be too for anyone that's not uh, familiar with it. I've seen the original film at least three times and this version once before, so I'm perhaps past the point of diminishing returns of rewatching. Uh, but even so, this still held up quite well for me. Josh Brolin also is excellent. Elizabeth Olsen is pretty good. And Charlotte Copley is Charlotte Copley. The action sequences are as kinetic and crunchy as the original, and Lee's produced as slick a big studio outing as Inside Man. 
albeit one that, un- that cratered at the box office, which it didn't really deserve, but I suppose the nature of a film like this is likely to appeal mainly to people who'd been watching the original for a decade. So the audience value proposition, as it tends to be for remakes, was questionable. I still rather enjoyed revisiting it, but crucially, I'd still rather have revisited the original, and in the context of these episodes, there's not an awful lot of Spike Lee manifested in the studio's final cut. From a Spike Lee film context, the most interesting thing about this is simply that it exists. Um, Making it seems a choice a bit out of character for him, and the results Mm. do not show the same character as his other work. An enjoyable enough footnote in his output, but one that raises more questions than answers. Yeah, By itself, perfectly fine film. As a Spike Lee film... Yeah, not so sure um, it has a lot of uh, merit in, in that distinction. He, he's not put much of his imprint on it, perhaps, other than the kind of slickness, but um, we've seen him do big studios before with Inside Man and the 25th Hour to an extent where he's kind of managed to kind of mesh his style and his politics and his worldview much better than happened in this, where it kind of really didn't happen. If this didn't say Spike Lee film on it, I'm not sure you'd know it was a Spike Lee film. Yeah, this is not a Spike Lee film. Yeah. <laughs> it's strange. When I threw it to you, Scott, I said that it has um, not a sufficient amount of hammer. Yes. Uh, it, it also has an unacceptable amount of Charlotte Copley. <laughs> which is more than zero, yes. Which is, <laughs> I'll, I'll largely accept his name. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, th- this may prove uh, confusing for younger viewers, but there was a time when Charlotte Copley was a thing. Uh, for some reason, people <laughs> thought he was good. And then everyone kind of overnight realised, hi on, he really isn't. And then he's more or less gone away. And that's that's a good thing. We should all be, I'll be happy for that. I I, I do need to revisit District 9 at some point. I, I think that that might still work, but I'm not sure. The only other time, honestly, I found him tolerable was Hardcore Henry. Yeah. He's quite fun in that. Yes. And everything else, he is appalling. Yes. I don't know what he's doing in this. I mean, it's not quite as so bad as Maleficent <laughs> with his butchering of a allegedly Scottish accent. I've read. I definitely didn't hear Scottish accent. I've read that that's what it was supposed to be. In this, with his strange, he's an effete Englishman who's uh, somehow the fam from a family of American business people who moved to Luxembourg. I'm not following this <laughs> yeah. accent choice at all, and he's terrible. And I mean, the film's not terrible, but honestly, it's verging that way. I just I, I don't like this film. I don't I don't see the point of it for one thing. I mean, yeah, you know what I mean. As much as I complain about the reluctance of many people to watch films in a language not their own with subtitles. Mm. Um, and I really hate people say, oh, I came to watch a film not to read it. It's like, you know, die in all the fires. But um, there, there is a, still a barrier of entry for that. So, and I don't necessarily dislike that all people just, a lot of people rather just will dismiss all of them. Mm. So there is some merit. I mean, if you look at, for instance, The Departed, yeah. The film is based on and the remake, both very good films. And I think there's enough of a twist on The Departed to make it substantially different from yeah. Infernal Affairs. And it feels like a Martin Scorsese film. Yeah, This, as you said, very rightly, does not feel like a Spike Lee film. And it's also, it's weird, there are some bits which are almost, not so much scene for scene, because it's not a scene for scene thing at all, but um, there are some shots which are very, very like the... The original film, yeah, like the, which are presumably there for the fact that they look just like the original film, or I'm guessing maybe the manga. I don't suppose you've read the manga. Scott? I have not. No, no. So I, it feels like they may actually be shots from the original manga rather than it being from the film. Mm-hmm. But like the scene of the imprisoned character grabbing the legs of somebody through the gap in the bottom of the cell door, yeah. Or the very almost Streets of Rage like side on scene where he's fighting lots of people with the hammer and leaving the prison. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of those scenes which are very obviously so similar to the original that at least there's a nod to that or the manga. And then a lot of the changes don't make a lot of sense. Like, why was the the relationship of the the characters and the victims changed? Why was that a whole weird family? I mean, it's all very the architects. Yeah, <laughs> if you remember that slightly disturbing German film, Scott. Yes, and I don't understand why that changed. And it's like everything about this film is just kind of slightly less good. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, I watched Old Boy. Um, and we'll call this New Boy for lack of <laughs> confusion, okay? I watched Old Boy again three days before I watched this because mm. uh, I really wanted to give it a good comparison. Um, again, possibly watching two such similar films so close together is one of the reasons I didn't enjoy this so much, but it gave me a much better idea of just what was changed. And I don't really understand it. Okay, the the hypnosis and post-hypnotic suggestion thing in Old Boy is well, it's daft. Yeah. Such things in films always yes. are. But at least it sort of allowed them to explain how things happened. Whereas in New Boy, it relies an awful lot on luck, which I hate more than weird science <laughs> because so much could go wrong. Yeah, it's like there, there's in Old Boy, he is compelled to um, interact with Mido in the sushi bar the way he does, basically by the post-hypnotic suggestion of her to respond to him. In this one. If his friend had decided not to pick up that card or thrown it away or not noticed it, he'd have just called the paramedics. Yeah. There's no reason for him to stop. <laughs> yeah. And then the whole film wouldn't happen after that point. And I hate films are based in coincidence like that. Yeah. So there are a few things like that. And like the the investigation seems to be like about 50% in New Boy, whereas an old boy, like you realise that he's been played for a lot of it through by the end. But he is investigating things and trying to find things out and in New Boy it kind of mostly just kind of happens yeah. they don't do that much investigation so it's there are changes that don't make a lot of sense and, and you add to that the fact that this is a Spike Lee film that is the least Spike Lee film I've ever seen I think and I don't see the point of this film at all yeah I mean, first off, I thought Weird Science was an all right John Hughes film. It's got a good theme tune, if nothing else. Um, but yeah, this, this film, apparently there's a... Yeah, the studios went and chopped about 40 minutes out of this, I think it was saying, compared to what Spike Lee had in mind. To be honest, I'm not sure if any of those 40 minutes would have really made it a much better film. Old Boy is not that old of, uh, long a film in the first instance, and it doesn't need to be uh, to tell its story. Um, I can't think what you'd be adding into New Boy that would actually make this any better. Certainly all the things that you have changed are less good than the original version. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Uh, I think I, I probably still like this a bit more duded. Um, I, I didn't completely hate it, although perhaps a bit more distant from the last viewing of Old Boy, but I just can't possibly recommend watching this rather than watching Old Boy, the original. Um, I don't hate version. it. It's too well enough made to hate it. Yeah. I just, I just don't like it. It's, yeah. And mostly it's pointless. And there is, it's strange too. I think one of the most notably non-Spike Lee things about it is the fact that there's no humour. Yeah. Old Boy's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> yes. There's a lot of humour in Old Boy, even from the very beginning when he said, I wondered if 15 years of boxing against myself could um, serve me against some like street punks, basically. Yeah. It can. And then just a few beats later, I wondered if 15 years of whatever, and it's like, oh, it couldn't. <laughs> and then just like the fact that the main character is just kind of slightly goofy looking. Yeah. And... Josh Brolin can't do Giffy. Yeah. <laughs> and that's particularly weird because even in his really serious stuff, like, look at Do the Right Thing, look at the end of Do the Right Thing after everything that happens. Yeah. It ends on funny. Yeah. Spike Lee is incredibly adept at putting humour into f- films that you wouldn't necessarily think would support it. And there's nothing in New Boy. Absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. It's so poor-faced and it's so strange to have come from that director. Yeah. I mean, I suppose... Look for positives. The one thing, one upside it has on Old Boy is the fact that the two characters who were supposed to have been at school together look like they could have been school together. (laughs) Whereas in the original, there's a 14-year age difference between the actors. Yes. And it looks like about 24. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) And I have seen some some theories that that's because because it's all based on like the story of Oedipus and other Greek things. Lee in Old Boy is supposed to be a representation of a Greek god and it doesn't age like no you're, you're really stretching <laughs> yes. now and in Spike Lee's new boy that's fixed like okay I don't know what's going on with his accent or his weirdly groomed face but um, Lee Shadow Copley and Josh Bond you can imagine they were <laughs> yes um, yeah. it's cool together but yeah I, I, I struggle 
to justify pointless. But again, it's a it's a good story, and you're bringing it to a different audience who maybe just would not see something like a Korean film. Yeah, I just kind of wish it was better. Yes, I wish yeah. it was a Spike Lee film. That's my biggest issue. I wanted to be a Spike Lee film, and it's not. It should have been at least eighty percent dolly shots, and then it would have been much better. But yeah, no, um, it, it, I just can't really justify this film's existence. If, if you came to invite me, there, there's nothing it really does much better than the original. The original is funnier and has better action, and I think it was overall better acted. It's just better. Um, there is something to be said for widening the audience to it, but um, as the uh, box office impact shows, it didn't work. So <laughs> I think everyone that was interested in this had already seen the original, and that's really the right call. Can't fault them for that logic. <laughs> Yes, it's, it's honestly, the tip is to watch Old Boy, and then if you want to check out the Spike Lee version, just watch Old Boy again. Yes, you'll be much happier. <laughs> Will we find any better purchase in Chirac? I, I think it's reasonable to assume we might, Scott. It's certainly a lot more original. Mm. <laughs> well, it's another remake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think it's time to come probably come around, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> two and a half centuries, two and a millennia, sorry, yeah. it's probably all right. Yeah. Now, I assume you're all familiar with Aristophanes' Lysistrata, yes? <laughs> intimately, intimately. No. Oh. Well, I admit there are gaps in my 5th century BCE Greek theatre knowledge too. <laughs> How I lament our education system. <laughs> anyway, for those of you not in the know... Aristophanes' comic play was about the women of Athens and Sparta during the Peloponnesian War who, led by Lysistrata, denied their husbands and lovers sex, the only thing they desired more than bloodshed and warfare. The purpose? In order to enforce an end to the hostilities and the attendant death and destruction. Chirac, incidentally Amazon Studios' first production, from a script by Spike Lee and Kevin Wilmot, sees the action updated to contemporary Chicago particularly the Englewood neighbourhood of the city's south side, and gang violence between the Trojans, led by Wesley Snipes' Cyclops, <laughs> and the Spartans, led by Nick Cannon's Demetrius Dupree, better known as Chirac. I think it's probably obvious, but just in case, that um, it's worth pointing out that Chirac is a nickname given by some residents of Chicago to the city to um, compare it with Iraq as many Americans pronounce it, suggesting that the violence in the city is comparable to that country. So after a number of violent incidents, including the death of a child, Chirac's girlfriend Lucy Strata, played by Teona Paris, leaves him seeking refuge in the home of Angela Bassett's Helen Worthy, a non-violence advocate and victim of gang violence who urges her to investigate the actions of Lema Gaboe, a Liberian peace protester who helped to end the Second Liberian Civil War by, amongst other things, threatening a sex strike. Recruiting the, initially unwilling, help of the girlfriends, wives and partners of the enemy Trojans, Lysistrata begins the sex boycott, managing to enlist the support of even the city's sex workers, before taking over the local National Guard armory, after which her protest of no peace, no pussy goes global. After a many months siege of the armory, in which the male-led police force's best tactic to remove them is Operation Hot and Bothered, which amounts to playing slow jams certain to get the woman in the mood to move up and down rapidly in that curious way that humans find so agreeable. <laughs> the heterosexual, male-dominated world is now at a standstill, and the president of the USA empowers and blames the mayor of Chicago to end the crisis, resulting in agreements to build much-needed hospitals and trauma centres in Englewood, and much-needed truth and reflection. Now, Chirac's definitely not going to be for everyone, as the direct-to-camera exposition and narration by Samuel L. Jackson's Dolomides, <laughs> in full-on, super-intense Samuel L. Jackson form, and in particular, the rhyming dialogue of the bulk of the film, stand a good chance of being found irritating. But fortunately, I quite enjoyed it. It's colourful, inventive, often funny, political and truthful, without really feeling preachy, despite much of the more serious dialogue being delivered by John Cusack's actual preacher. It is very uneven in its aesthetic, though. Sometimes feeling like film, sometimes like filmed theatre, and sometimes feeling like filmed protests or even art installation. But 
well, it's an interesting experiment from a filmmaker still willing to take chances, and I will always welcome that. Yes, I mean, as we all know, poetry is for losers and weirdos. Uh, so, I don't know, Chirac on that level didn't do an awful lot for me. I perhaps was finding the artifice of it a little bit annoying. Uh, but I'm glad that it exists. It's a really bold and different experiment. I've never seen anything like this. And most likely I'll never see anything like it again. Um, it's a, a riot of colour. Um, Wesley Snipes is fantastic, even though he's not really in it all that very much. I, I do wish he had a kind of bigger role, um, because Wesley Snipes is great. Yeah. Um, Nick Cannon, to be fair, is all right. A bit of hot bother for him at the minute, but um, that aside, uh, everything else is, you know, it, I can't really fault it. I find John Cusack's character a bit... <sighs> It's not that anything he's saying is particularly wrong. Of course, he's he's in the right for everything that he says. It's just the, the, the way he delivers it seems a bit too preachy, as you say. But again, he's a preacher, so what are you going to do? I, I, I'm glad this film exists. It's not really for me, but uh, I'm sure there's a lot of people who will uh, find a, a lot of love for it. It'll just be managing to connect those people with the audience. It's a, It's so strange a film that the elevator pitch for it is kind of difficult um in a lot of ways i'm just wondering how this got made um <laughs> it's uh, i guess that's the benefits of owning your own production company you can it's, it's easy enough to pitch it to yourself but i can't imagine any you, you can't imagine this going through many um like committees to rewrite or anything you know what i mean it's, it's a really distinctive and individual piece of work and uh yeah in the context of spike lee's filmography it's absolutely worth viewing because it is so unique um and such a interesting spin on events so yes I, there's lots of positives i can have for it i mean personally i didn't like it all that much but i didn't hate it and uh yeah i can certainly appreciate uh, the the content of it I do wonder if Amazon Studios knew what they were getting here. <laughs> I can see when they're trying to get started as a production company, being attracted to a name like Spike Lee, whether they knew that they were getting an adaptation of a 2,400-year-old yeah. play or not is, <laughs> uh, is debatable. I'm curious. But yeah, I just, I did, I, mean, I had issues with the film certainly, but I enjoyed it. And even if I hadn't, I think I would have been happy that something like this existed. Yeah. This this level of polish, this production value, and the director it had, and the stars it had, um, and in like a, I mean, Amazon was just starting out as a production company at the time. Obviously, with this being our first, but I I think it's just when they're starting to try and fill up Prime Video with their own work, and like that sort of backing behind them, I, I really appreciate that it exists. Yes. And it's really interesting, and it really is funny in parts. But not all of it lands, but I appreciate that they tried. Yes. <laughs> and that, that's the key thing. It's really interesting. I agree with you that there should be more Wesley Snipes, because there should basically always be more Wesley Snipes. Yes. <laughs> As we discussed in our episode covering the works of Wesley Snipes a little while ago. So actually, he's really good. Yes. I think he's not a name that pops to the top of most people's minds a lot of the time. Uh, and perhaps because he was out of the spotlight for such a long time because of his problems with tax um, yeah. evasion is the word, I guess, for him. But yeah, he's really good. I just wish he was in more stuff. And also, you just reminded, like, and even a very small role, Angela Bassett is incredible. Yes. And we should have more Angela Bassett in everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's unique. This is a really unique film. I, I have not seen anything like it either. Certainly not with this level of polish. Yeah. So yeah, it's. I think even if you didn't like it, in the end, at the risk that it's not something you enjoyed. I think anybody interested in Spike Lee's work at all should absolutely check this out because it, it's so unique and it's so interesting. And really, the fact that he's still taking these sorts of chances is great. Yeah. Yeah. He he's never got stuck in a groove, Spike Lee. I mean, but with the exception of like double dolly shots and stuff and <laughs> the other visual spikeism that is in a lot of stuff but didn't really start bothering me until this film which is his double takes mm. because there's a that service got the funeral service which is um almost like James Brown service in the Blues Brothers it's yeah. so upbeat it's really <laughs> kind of weird but that is full of double maybe even triple takes and like what is that representing I don't 
know what that's meant to say. It doesn't say anything to me. Yeah. Yeah. Puzzling. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I don't know the point of that, but uh, <laughs> beyond that, yeah, it's, I just like that it's so different. Certainly different. We'll give it that much. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to something else that I guess in its own way, Scott, is quite different in that there's a, a black man inside the KKK. Yes. This is Black Klansman, of course, in which we join John David Washington's Ron Stallworth in Colorado Springs, 1972, as the first black policeman in the CSPD, uh, hoping to make a mark, but running into some headwinds due to prejudice, and to be fair, also because he's just walked in the door. However, he's allowed to transfer to the undercover department when the local black student union, headed by Laura Harris as Patrice Dumas, organises a speech by ex-Black Panther Kwame Touré. What's supposed to be a simple observe and report turns into a relationship with Patrice, who's kept unappraised of Ron's day job due to her stance that all cops are bastards. At any rate, Ron's moved on to investigating a resurgent Ku Klux Klan, apparently brazen enough to advertise for members in the newspaper. Ron dials up, and Ryan Eggold's chapter leader Walter Breachway is eager to meet, which would perhaps present logistical issues for Ron, what with him being black and all. So, a white copper is drafted in to play a physical counterpart to phone Ron, namely Adam Driver's Flip Zimmerman, a lapsed Jew, so still a fairly spicy choice for the operation, uh, but... <laughs> In short, the two work together to gain the confidence of the clan in an effort to spoil their plans, be that burning crosses, or as Jasper Packerin's particularly nutty nutter, Felix Kendrickson pushes for more explosive actions. Despite the subject matter, or in parts because of it, Black's Klansman is very funny, particularly the phone relationship between Ron and head clan jackass Topher Grace's David Duke, with likeable performances from Washington, Driver and Harrier, and rowdly hateable pantomime performances on the jackass side of the aisle. It is not, of course, subtle, in line with Lee's <laughs> usual modus operandi, however, to be fair, it's not the sort of subject that brooks a lot of subtlety. There are not, in fact, good people on both sides, and even with that in mind, the point where the characters essentially harangue the audience for Donald Trump's existence perhaps seems a little bit much, uh, but more successful is the reminder at the film's conclusion that these knuckle-dragging bigots are still knocking around in space here now, even if that does harsh out the mellow of perhaps the film's funniest moment. No justice, no enjoying the laughs in peace. All told, this is great stuff. The most commercially successful of Lee's recent works, which for once I'd argue actually reflects the quality of the work. Highly recommended. Yeah, I, I won't add too much, Scott, because I've actually talked about this film on the podcast before, mm-hmm. when it was released on one of our intermission episodes revisiting it now which is i think the third time i've seen it right Uh, i think it's still great yes i i assume you're utterly impressed with the exceptional uh effects work in creating flip yes (laughs) yes uh from adam driver of course uh hollywood's longest running uh, cg created actor Uh, (laughs) is there an origin story to that belief or did you just decide it one day i've always wondered (laughs) i thought it'd be funny (laughs) Works for me. Obviously, isn't, but you know. Well, I don't know. I, I keep bringing it up because I'm using me, so that's it's good enough for me. I've never been known not to vlog a dead horse, so. Yeah, so I watched it twice in quite quick succession when it came out. Mm-hmm. I saw it in the cinema, I think. Did I see it in the cinema a second time? Or maybe just like quite soon after. But I've seen it twice and I really liked it. I think I even liked it more the second time. And then it's been a couple of years now since it came out, so I went back into it and I find that every bit is enjoyable. It's, there, there's some incredibly tense moments. It's It's got Spike Lee's sig, um, signature thing, as far as I'm concerned, the actual signature thing of like of being able to put real humour yeah. in some really tense or um, powerful situations. Yeah. Something notably missing in, in Old Boy. And... I'm sad to say, though, that I did notice the double dolly shot this time, which I wasn't really aware of <laughs> yeah. as being even a thing before when the last time I watched Black Clansman. But yeah, John David Washington is great. He's clearly got inherited a lot of his genes from his dad. Mm-hmm. So I'll look forward to seeing more of him in the future. I think he was going to go and be an American football player at one point was his idea. Yeah. Um, and, oh, he should stick to acting because, you know, it's, he's inherited a lot of, of good stuff from his dad there. And... It's just a, it's such an entertaining film. And what I had wondered was, I remember finding that last scene, when which is another thing that comes up a lot in Spike Lee films, is like either you'll get a shot, somebody will mention something, you'll get a shot of like a, a bit of archive footage or a newspaper clipping or something, like something real. Yeah. That he puts in, um, it's, it's more issue-driven films, kind of to, I guess, give them weight. 
Um, and it's, uh, so this film ends with footage of the woman being run down at the Charlottesville rally, you know, the one with yeah. good people on both sides. <laughs> Very fine people on both sides, I think was the, <laughs> the actual phrase, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, from that particular asshat. And I, I was really affected by that in the cinema, and I wasn't sure if it would get me this time, and it really did. Mm. Um, I mean, honestly, even like standalone, it should be such a horrendous thing, but following what's come before it, it's, it's powerful stuff. And I, again, as we were particularly saying in our last episodes, a lot of these things, they're still timely. Yeah. Yeah, fortunately, not a lot has changed in many of the things, the the events that this film covers. Yeah, it's, it's a powerful film. It's it's a contender for one of for Spike Lee's best film. Yes, absolutely. I yeah. I, I'm not sure. I mean, I've not seen everything he's done. I've seen the bulk of it, and I think my vote would probably still be for Do the Right Thing because there's there's a real energy to that. Yeah. Whereas this is. There's some of that energy, but it's it's more just like a decent story, yeah. Um, without quite so much of like the the rawness there, but it's so entertaining and the the performances are all great. And I kind of don't believe that Steve Buscemi has a brother, yeah, because this film is really annoying. And I found every time I've watched it that Steve Buscemi's brother Michael, who very rarely acts sounds exactly like Steve Buscemi yes. and looks exactly like Steve Buscemi with a fake nose. And I'm convinced, in fact, <laughs> is, is Steve Buscemi with a fake nose. Is, is he uh, pulling a man on the moon trick with a... <laughs> yeah. it's kind of, like, I, I subscribe to John Oliver's theory that there is only one Olsen twin moving really quickly. <laughs> yes. And my own theory I add in a similar vein is that Michael Buscemi is, in fact, Steve Buscemi with a fake nose. Yes. Um, Possibly for some sort of tax dodge. dodge. Doing this, and I'm I'm instructed by my darling wife to tell me that her her one issue with this film was that um, Nicholas Totoro plays a guy who's like the clan's bomb expert contact, and he looks too Hispanic to be associating with the clan. Um, also, Nicholas Totoro <laughs> is uh, Italian American. Yes, and looks, but also has a similar problem um, as with Michael Buscemi and, again, just looks an awful lot like John Turturro. Uh, I think what I appreciate most about Black Klansman is that if you wind back to the first part of this, we were loudly praising a lot of Bikley's character work and maybe not his narrative stuff. And the one thing that might be an argument for Black Klansman giving edging out do the right thing is it is both as narrative and character and humour as well. It's, uh, it, it, I think I probably agree with you ultimately that the uh, Do the Right Thing has more energy and drive to it, but I think this this is a very strong contender for being alongside it. It's, it, it. It picks up a lot of the things that I might have knocked some of these early work for and manages to make a, a much more cohesive package and much more easier to kind of roundly recommend to audiences that are perhaps not all that into the, the issues that uh, Lee's uh, presenting. This has the benefit of having a really great and engaging story to pull people in and also give them a crash course in the the, the importance of the, the topics and the politics that Lee brings to the table. So, yeah, I, I could make a strong argument for Black Klansman if, uh, if for being his best work, and I would, I would certainly listen to anyone prepared to make that statement, although, yes, uh, what we're saying is watch both of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would set the documentary stuff aside because... Uh, I think When the Life is Broke is an incredible film. Sure. Um, and that, that could easily be a contender, but I think we'll set aside sort of non-fiction and fiction stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this, I really like Malcolm X. I think it's yeah. just a notch yeah. below. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he's made a tremendous number of really good films and then well, quite different too. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. There are similar themes, naturally. And Spike Lee has an axe to grind and it's a legitimate axe you know that should be ground you want to get that properly sharp to like spike but um i think i use that weapon skyrim legitimate axe yeah <laughs> uh, but yeah this is this is really good i think it's it's silly one of his most cohesive perhaps yeah most rounded narrative pieces mm-hmm. it's just even without all the other stuff it's just a fantastic story yes and the fact that it's based on a true story and to the best I can gather, quite close. I mean, if Flip basically didn't exist, I think Flip's kind of an amalgam 
of a number of people. So that I think takes away a wee bit from the fact that he was a Jewish man putting himself in danger yeah. when it wasn't actually a person that existed. I mean, it, um, it has a degree of truthiness to it, but there's an awful lot of invention on here. I mean, the whole character of um, Laura Harrier, uh, Patrick Dumas didn't, as far as I can tell, exist in Ron's story. There's a lot of things that have been put in there just to make it a film, and I don't I don't begrudge it that. It's, yeah, but there the, the, the is based on uh, quite a lot of truth, and, and for some of the actually the more far fetched things, yeah, the bits is, you wouldn't believe are the bits that are true. The rest of yeah. it, the rest of it's just filler. But um, yeah, the, the, the conversation at the end with David Duke on the phone, where he like he told them that he was he'd been speaking to a black man all this time, happened. Mm, so I, mean, th- I heard that it that, didn't. I thought, um, that I'm sure that I'd heard that it did. No, um, I'm not so sure about that one. But yeah, if it did, it would be great. I choose to believe that it exists. Oh, no, wait. No, see, see, this is, Wikipedia says it didn't happen, but I was sure I heard somewhere someone say that it did. Uh, I'll leave that one undecided just now because, well, Wikipedia, you know. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I mean, it, it did happen. But David, you could spend all this time on the yeah. phone talking to a black man. It's like perhaps the, the point of contention is whether or when anybody found out. Yeah. Uh, whether one more of them happened or not is by the by. The fact that it happened at all is the point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very compelling film. Very rare indeed. I mean, you, you can't really say that Lee's been sort of polished and he's worked out because it's starting off pretty polished. You know, mm-hmm. you get from she's got to have it to do the right thing quite quickly. It's like, wow, you know, this is powerful. Yeah. Accomplished filmmaking by just his third film. Like, like really accomplishing. Uh, the fact somebody producing something is accomplished, they say, Boys in the Hood. Um, John Singleton is his first film. That's not all that common. Yeah. So, but but to do it by your third film and then to have that queue afterwards, it, um, yes, it, it's quite impressive. But it's this, so it's not a culmination event. It's more just like, you know that guy that was really good at making films for the last two decades. Turns out, still got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, turns out, still good at yeah. making films. <laughs> but can the same be said of his most recent film, The Five Bloods, recently on a Netflix near you? Well, let's see, shall we? So Spike Lee's latest is The Five Bloods, a mere month old as we record, and was originally set to be an Oliver Stone-directed film, though seemingly he decided he'd probably made enough Vietnam films. <laughs> and so the original script was extensively rewritten by Lee and Chirac and Black Klansman writer Kevin Wilmot. This, I think, turned out to be a good thing, as The Five Bloods delivers a take on the Vietnam genre that is rare, if not entirely non-existent, and therefore utterly necessary. The Blank Perspective Racial issues have often featured, certainly, and there is often an undercurrent of tension in the disproportionate ethnic makeup of the US Army, particularly in Vietnam era. But there's also usually a Martin Sheen, or a Charlie Sheen, or a Matthew Medine, or a Robin Williams, or a Tommy Lee Jones, around to sort things out and take the starring role. And often a Charlie Sheen again, because hot shots counts, right? <laughs> the Five Bloods, though, entirely concerns the members of a black squad, with the only white soldiers being a soon-to-be-demised door gunner and helicopter pilot. In characteristically subtle Spike Lee style, the film opens with archive footage of Muhammad Ali elaborating his opposition to the war, and other footage of notable black figures from the time, as well as some clips of President Fake Bone Spurs, <laughs> lest you be in any doubt about Lee's feelings about that particular waste of skin and oxygen. Whether this is scene-setting or a brief history lesson for a non-white audience, it seems to set up the politics of the Five Bloods in no uncertain terms. Which is a bit weird in the end, as the film largely becomes the treasure of the Saigon Madre. (laughs) Okay, that's a little unfair, but only a little. Lee, noted film student that he is, lets his enthusiasm for the medium shine through so much in his references that at times The Five Bloods feels like he couldn't decide exactly which film he wanted to make, so he made all of them. <laughs> the Five Bloods of the title are five Vietnam veterans, Delroy Lindo's Paul, Clark Peter's Otis, Norm Lewis's Eddie, and Isaiah Whitlock Jr.'s Melvin, who we meet in Saigon, now Ho Chi Minh City, having returned to the country to find and repatriate the remains of the Fifth Blood, Chadwick Boseman's Storm and Norman. That he was buried by the squad close to where they also buried several million dollars of gold bullion, intended as payment to the Lahu people and aboard a downed US plane, is purely coincidence. While the former squad mates haven't seen much of each other in years, 
they have a clear chemistry based on mutual experience and affection, sold absolutely by the excellent central cast. But from the earliest moments, we see that Paul has issues. He's afflicted by PTSD and annoying guilt, the reason for which we'll find out later. But he's also a racist, immigrant decrying, fake bone spurs voting, MAGA hat wearing dick. That's a literal MAGA hat, by the way. He's also the most interesting character in the film. And it's impressive work by Lee and Wilmot to make him so sympathetic and yet so resisting of sympathy or affection. Spike Lee really does like his protagonist to be complex. That is, of course, aided by a stellar performance by Delroy Lindo, the film's standout. Expect next year the award ceremonies to once again prove how wrong they are not to give him all the awards. <laughs> yeah. As the bloods head into the Vietnamese jungle, we occasionally slip into flashbacks. Shot on 16mm film, something that Netflix required a lot of persuasion to allow, and in a 4 3 aspect ratio that's shown the squad through various experiences in the war, gradually fleshing out their beliefs and the impact of Storm and Norman's philosophies for the betterment of their people, including one very charged scene when Hanoi Hanna delivers to them the news of the assassination of Martin Luther King. We also slip into some less competent storytelling as the group, which includes though could easily not do, Paul's son David, meets Melanie Thierry's Chekhov's Landmine Charity, LAM, uh, an acronym which I assume stands for Lantern Hanging for Attention to Mines Blowing Up. <laughs> Though, to be fair, there is quite a lot of tension to be felt as the squad dig at every positive bleep of their metal detector as they search for the gold. And pity that it leads towards Spike Lee's very own The Butterfly Effect moment. <laughs> Though I could be persuaded this one was intentionally funny. And of course, the most dangerous unexploded mine around is probably the fast unravelling Paul. The Five Bloods is a bit too messy to be a great film, though it's certainly solid and enjoyable. But it is important given it may be the only US Vietnam film with black soldiers at the centre. Scandalous if it's true, but I certainly couldn't bring to mind any other examples by the time we recorded this. There's a lot to appreciate though, and I can't imagine the flashbacks being done any more effectively. In an anti-The Irishman approach, even if Lee does jokingly attribute this to lack of budget, (laughs) the actors play themselves in flashback as they are in the present day, and the square, grainy footage recalls perfectly newscasts and home footage of the time. There's also, though I would have liked more, humanisation of the Vietnamese including one notable scene where the audience is allowed to know what the Vietnamese soldiers are saying, rather than just being unintelligible voices. And it's really not that different from what their opponents might have said on any given day. On the downside, there are, of course, the double takes and double dolly shots, which I now fully believe are just in there because they've always been, (laughs) and unnecessarily gory effects shots of Vietnamese soldier skulls exploding in firefights with the bloods, which feel crass and out of place in a spikely film. It's more of a Tarantino thing, really. Finally, while there is the ride of the Valkyries, there's no credence, (laughs) which may be a war crime, or at least a war film crime. (laughs) I applaud Lee's audacity. I I like this film a bit, um, but I can't say I'm all that enthusiastic about it. I mean, look... If I ever run for any kind of elected office, it will be on the basis of having more Delroy Lindo and things. So <laughs> I'm always going to be winner for that. I don't think I'd win that office. It's a bit of a single issue candidacy, really. Uh, but that aside, there's a film in here that I like, but I think it would have to be about 90 minutes long rather than, what, 150? So yeah, it's about two and a half hours. Yeah, this film feels a bit flabby and self-indulgent at points. I don't think there's any like one thread running through it that I'd disliked but when it's all kind of rolled together in a ball that ball's just a bit too big to comfortably digest yeah i'm not sure what the deck size from it but there's it's not as well paced as it could have been and there's a lot of things i think that are maybe not all that interesting i think yeah perhaps as you say the the kind of relationship with this uh kid uh is not all that compelling and ultimately doesn't really go anywhere yeah, that that's perhaps something that, that that could go. Some of the other characters are sort of fleshed out a bit, but again, ultimately something that doesn't quite 
go all that far. Um, and seems in a number of instances just to be a way to get Jean Reno to show up, and, <laughs> and so so they can have an ending, so they can have that ending, which is perhaps one of the least parts of it. Um, it would be interesting to see if Spike Lee just decided to go for some reason and do some ridiculous all-out action film like a sort of 90s era Verhoeven um, doing a take on it and that's kind of what you get in a few scenes in this but it feels wildly out of place with the rest of the film um, so, so yes it's, it's just a bit messy um, which is not something I've normally come to say about Spike Lee's work uh, it's it's not awful I didn't dislike it but it's one of his least successful films for me uh, there's lots of ideas in here, but the ideas don't seem to kind of hang together all that well. Curiously for me, uh, particularly in recent podcasts, Scott, the running time didn't bother me. Mm. I didn't actually feel it, uh, which surprised me. And I thought it was a solid film. I was entertained by it. But I, I don't disagree with any of your particular points. There's certainly things that could be excised. The, I think you could excise the character David entirely and not notice it. Yeah. And when you say like it's like there's some ideas in here, I think the problem is that there were lots and lots of ideas in here, and he yes. kept them all. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, so he couldn't quite decide like which ones to run with and which not. Um, and I don't know how much of that is a hangover from the original script, yeah, which I think was changed a lot. But I kind of get the idea that maybe they should just just torn up the script. Yeah. Not really told anybody until they started making it. I kept as little of the original script or none of it if possible. Yeah. I've got all these ideas. All of them. I'll have all of them. It's, <laughs> it's a bit of a muddled film. But I did find it entertaining. It is... Um, there are some like, great performances. Delroy Lindo's amazing. Yes, yeah. Uh, there's a scene where he's... He's got a bit delirious and he's talking directly to the camera. Which works in context, actually. And it's a great scene also. Apparently required quite a lot of effort on Del Rolando's part to do that. It's, it's yeah. so alien to him that he required a lot of work to actually be able to do that to the yeah. camera. <laughs> and it's a really great scene. It's, um, do you know how Del Rolando's, um quite intense? Yes. It's like, oh, Spike Lee decided, what we need is a more intense Del Rolando. Like, <laughs> Jeez. I'm not sure this film can contain a more intense <laughs> Del Rolando. <laughs> You're saying about like it'd be quite interesting to do for Spike Lee to do a Paul Verhoeven like action film, and I assume you're not particularly serious, but yeah. I think it would work. I don't think Spike Lee's a strong action director. Hmm. There's not a lot of his films that have much action in that way in them. I just I don't really think he's it's his metier. He doesn't really know what to do because a lot of the action in this and there's not a lot of action, but it felt uncomfortable and set of really the. The scenes with the in the flashback when they're fighting the either the Viet Cong or the North Vietnamese army, yeah, and there's like heads exploding left and right. I guess they showed like they're really well out squad and work together, but it just seemed over the top and it didn't feel necessary. It didn't say anything, and it, and it just kind of looked awful. Yeah, like, that's what you use your production budget on. <laughs> Not a great choice. I mean, you could have done it with a better. Um, missing arms and leg suit for <laughs> your man um, earlier would yeah. have been better but, <laughs> but like I said Alice, I mean, there are lots of racial politics in a lot of Vietnam films but they still tend to be that the black people are to the side or they're smaller characters yeah. and if it's really taken until 2020 for there to be a Vietnam War film focusing pretty much exclusively on black characters that is well, criminal, basically. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I don't know how that's possible. It's, I don't know for certain that's the case because I don't know every Vietnam War film, but I, I tried before we began recording. I couldn't think of anything else that yeah. sprang It'll to mind, certainly. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. I, I think in those terms, though, it does suffer from a bit from being lots of other films at the same time. And I'm not joking, the story is so similar to The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Yeah. <laughs> with like hints of like Three Kings yeah. and Kelly's Heroes and stuff in there as well, but it's so similar to that. Not that necessarily that's a particularly unique story, it's the idea of like a whole bunch of money kind of turns people against other people, but it's so like the that John Houston film and the book it's based on. Yeah. That I think it suffers a wee bit for that. But there are some really good moments like some really tense moments too even if I, another bit that might be excessive probably is the whole landmine charity yeah I think you, you just needed one line at some point to say that there are still landmines in this area yeah 
that would have been fine because then they start poking in the ground every time they get a wee metallic ping on their... Yeah, uh, yeah you don't need three characters uh, to drive it home, particularly when they're not really being used for very much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so... Again, I didn't feel the running time on this, but th- th- you could cut half an hour of it without, I think, in any way, be detrimental to the film and possibly to its benefit, make it a bit more focused. Yeah. Um, I was mildly annoyed by quite how they found the gold. <laughs> yeah. Um, given that two seconds ago, two seconds before that, they were utterly lost. Yeah. <laughs> but as far as serendipitous discoveries go, I wasn't as irritated by that one as I might have been because they were in the general area. They were meant to be. They had been searching for a particular thing. Yes. Um, just how they actually found it was perhaps a bit silly. But <laughs> but yeah, um, it's certainly a specially film worth watching. I think most of the ones we've covered have been, I've had something to commend them. Yes, yes. And this one, Delver Lindo alone would probably be enough. Yeah. Let alone anything else that's going around it. Yeah, not as most successful, but interesting. Yes, yes, and I'm sure there'll be many more to come. And also, it, it's a new film being released in 2020, so, you know, get them all you can. That's <laughs> yeah. going to be drying up quite soon. <laughs> I, I think that will do us for this. Spelunking into Spike Lee's career. Spelunking. There's a, there's a pun there somewhere, but I can't be bothered to get to it. Um, so, uh, until next time, take care of yourself and each other. And I shall bid you adieu, and I'm sure that Drew will do too. Fairly well, folks. If you want to get in touch with us, you can, of course, do. Uh, podcast at Fuzz and Film for the emails. Uh, at Fuzz and Film on Twitter. Facebook.com slash Fuzz and Film. All that jazz. And until then, see you next time. Ta-da. Bye-bye.